This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Wednesday, time to talk about your health. And just as we thought the worst of COVID and flu and respiratory viruses were behind us, the norovirus is spreading and it is particularly dangerous for the youngest and the oldest. Here in Toronto, we are all getting older as the proportion of people over 65 has jumped And we are getting more diverse with 56% of the city's population belonging to a racialized group. Now, these are important factors in the snapshot of the city's health delivered by the medical officer of health. And at Queen's Park, the province has introduced legislation enabling more surgery to be delivered in private clinics. And the health minister insists the rules will protect patients from being bumped if they do not opt for more expensive procedures that are not covered by OHIP. So, uh, what do you want to hear about? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. Now, time for The Medical Record. And now I am joined by Dr. Malcolm Moore, medical oncologist at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center and former head of the BC Cancer Agency. Dr. Fahad Razak, an internist and epidemiologist at Unity Health Toronto, former head of the scientific advisory table. And Dr. Elisa Naiman, family physician and founder and medical director of the Medical Station. Hello and welcome to you all. Hi. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Let us begin with the norovirus. Uh, uh, Dr. Naiman, uh, why is it cropping up now and what should people be doing? Uh, so it's sort of interesting this year because you, I know the season usually runs from November to May in a typical, in a typical year, but it's usually concentrated around December. So a lot of people will get uh, gastro symptoms around Christmas time and families get together and it will just go through the family. And this year, since January, it has just gone crazy through schools with a lot of vomiting and diarrhea in schools. Um, and then what happens? They bring it home and it goes to, ad- uh, to their parents and to grandparents and people can get quite sick. People don't feel well for a couple of days um, and it just wipes out the whole family. Not a pleasant, pleasant illness. And uh, Dr. Razak, why are we seeing it now a little later than usual, you think? I think it's part of the weird surges of viruses we've seen this year as the public health restrictions have pulled away. A lot of the things that was suppressed the last few years are now surging back. And certainly this is a virus that we would see surge every winter. It's, you know, it's commonly called the winter vomiting virus. So we would see it. And the last few years, we almost forgot that it existed as the hand washing, the distancing, the lack of public gatherings all seem to push back not only COVID, but, but these other viruses um, it, it's important to note that the levels we have, at least for now, within Ontario are not higher than a typical year. But some parts of the world, for example, the United Kingdom, are seeing 
uh, a lot more than they typically do. So there is a, a little bit of a question around increased susceptibility after a couple of years of not getting as many infections as we normally do. And uh, as Dr. Naiman said, it can be quite uh, something to do with our, our daughter who's under age five is in daycare. Their entire daycare just got wiped out last week. Wow. Um, and the kids, the, the, the caregivers, then they bring it home to the family. So, you know, it's really it's really something. It, it, it time from exposure to onset is 12 to 24 hours. So it comes on very, very quickly. So you can have these explosive outbreaks. Dr. Moore, what about people who are A, older and B, immunocompromised like cancer patients? Well, you know, that's always a concern, but, uh, and certainly anecdotally, it does seem like there's more people sick over the past short while than there have been uh, traditionally. And uh, I agree with Dr. Razak. It's, it's kind of interesting that with all the restrictions around COVID, once those stopped, it seems like a lot of the viruses and bacteria that we normally have have come back with a vengeance. And it's kind of like we've been protected for two years because of all these public health measures, but now it's almost like a catch-up phase. Uh, I would assume that in time this will all level out. You know, it, it, it's, uh, I don't know, funny is the right word, but I was just remembering at the beginning of the pandemic, we all did these uh, these hand-washing videos and we're all washing our hands for a minute or whatever. And, and I'm sure there's been a lot of backsliding with that. Uh, is, is, is that part of it, Dr. Naiman? Yeah, I think there's just burnout and people are tired. People don't want to wear a mask. I know when people come into the office, we have hand sanitizer all over. And before, people would obsessively be washing their hands when they came in, when they left, and you just don't see that behavior anymore. I think people are tired. Hmm. Okay, well, let us move along to this snapshot of uh, the health of the city here in Toronto. And, excuse me, there are a lot of things uh, that seem to be part of the same phenomenon. It's talking about delayed screenings because of COVID and uh, delayed access to all kinds of health care. Dr. Razak, I mean, is there anything you found surprising in this? Uh, not surprising in that uh, people have been worried about a lot of the findings here, but I have to say it was quite troubling to see it spelled out so completely with numbers and statistics to back up, back up I think, a lot of what we were worried about. So, you know, I think the first thing to say is that, of course, the whole of society and health system pivot to trying to manage COVID was done with the best of intentions and a lot of good was achieved. But as we then lost access for things like mental health support or um, as there was employment disruptions, you see these spin-out effects, which were quite damaging. And, you know, some of the numbers from the report that I think were really striking is that in the city of Toronto, and I, and I think that this reflects broadly probably what occurred in the province and nationally, not exactly the same numbers, but broadly what happened was that you had a rise in food insecurity, meaning People didn't eat enough or didn't eat high-quality foods because they didn't have the income to support that. So that affected one in five individuals. That's an extraordinarily high number. Um, 40% of people who were renting were spending at least a third of their entire income on rent costs, and more than 7,000 people were experiencing homelessness. Again, staggering numbers. And then if you look at some of the acute medical issues like substance dependence and overdoses, the record year was the last year, so more than 600 opioid overdoses in the city. Um, and and some of the preventative health steps that we take uh, to try and prevent people from getting sick down the road, things like managing their chronic diseases by screening for breast cancer, managing high blood pressure, 
Um, all of those things also um, had reduced rates over the last few years. So you see the immediate impacts uh, from some of the reduced services, and then you worry about the long-term impact because of backlogs and screening and management. Uh, Dr. Moore, um, Dr. Razak was just talking about uh, the high cost of food. That's not changing anytime soon. Just yesterday, we got inflation numbers. Well, the overall inflation rate is down, but food inflation is still very high. And uh, we know there have been studies that show that food uh, can be a big factor in cancer, as well as all the other things that he's talking about. Yeah, I mean, there's pretty good data that uh, factors like socialization, income levels do impact on cancer survival. And um, obviously, the inner city particularly uh, has particular challenges with things like homelessness. I would say on a positive note, uh, there's certainly been a change in the past decade. There's a much greater, I think, uh, emphasis on inner city care and care of the homelessness. You've got hospitals like Unity St. Michael's Hospital that has that as one of its focuses. And I think this is real, these are really special populations that you need special programs for. Uh, Dr. Naiman, uh, I'm assuming that you practice in basically a, a middle-class area. How do these things impact in your neck of the woods? This is the first time that, you're right, I practice in a, in a middle-income area, there's, I have some patients who are very wealthy and some patients who are very poor. And I am often surprised and I'm sad that I have to say that I'm surprised that people will come in and tell me that they're going to the food banks to get food. And it would be people who I wouldn't think of and they just cannot, uh, they don't have enough money for food. They're paying rent. They have other expenses. And the quality of food in a food bank that they tell me is terrible. And if you have chronic medical conditions, especially diabetes, you are getting poor quality food that is not helping you with your management of, of your sugar intake. And a lot of people will tell me that the food is actually, is um, it's gone bad. It's past its due date. Um, it's, so it's become very hard. But even just for the middle class, ever since maybe the spring of 2022, it's the first time that I've ever had people come in and just say they're just so overwhelmed with with the expenses of life, they have, there have, um, a, there'll be a couple and both, both people will be working. They have children and they just don't know how they can make things work anymore. And it, this is really the first time that I've experienced people who, who have good jobs with good income that they're concerned about meeting monthly bills. Well, I know that uh, according to the statistics from food banks, there's an increasing number of people who have jobs and are working that have to use food banks. Uh, Dr. Razak? Yeah, I think what Dr. Naiman said is exactly what I'm hearing as well from patients, which is that there are these statistics of people who are at the very, um, the most marginalized where you see homelessness and, and the rise in homelessness, for example, but there's many, many other people who have now been tipped over into very precarious situations where they are going to food banks or having to compromise on either the quantity or the quality of the food that they're eating because of income. The, the, the inflation rates obviously have been blistering the last couple of years and many, many routine things that people have become accustomed to eating have become expensive to the point that they have to ask themselves, am I going to purchase this this week? Am I going to purchase this next week? It's a real decision point. And, you know, from the from the health perspective, we 
quite, you know, we, we say eat healthy fruits and vegetables, eat high quality dairy and make other recommendations. But these are some of the very food groups that have experienced the most precipitous increase in cost these last couple of years. And so I do think we have to ask the question of whether that healthy lifestyle is achievable for many people, given the rates of inflation and the cost of living now in the province. Let's uh, turn a little bit to politics. And the government introduced legislation to allow for more surgeries to take place in private clinics, starting with cataracts. I've got to say, as I thought this is already occurring, certainly for people who wanted to upgrade. So um, uh, who wants to take this question? What is going to be different now, um, aside from hopefully a wait time, who wants to take that? Well, I think one of the things that will be different in terms of cataract is, from what my understanding is now from patients, is that when they go to a private clinic, they are being, um, you are being charged for additional lenses and for the technology that's used to complete the cataract surgery. And if you do not want, if you just want basic OHIP, you can't access the service at these private clinics and you're forced to wait the long wait at the, in the hospital. And from what it sounds like the government has said that people will now have the opportunity to not have to be upsold on, on, um, lenses and be able to access this now in a private clinic. Hmm. Uh, Dr. Moore, do you, I mean, the opposition keeps warning us that this is a pitfall and we're headed down the two-tier road. Uh, do you see it that way? You know, I think we always have to be careful about the level of political influence in healthcare because it's very complicated and very precious. That said, there is a problem. We have unacceptable wait times for some uh, fairly standard medical procedures like hip and knee replacements and MRIs. And I think we have to take this legislation at its face value, which is it's an attempt to improve that. Because the acute care hospitals, which have been providing a lot of this, are just been swamped by things like COVID. And I think it is notable that uh, groups like the OHA are actually in support of this. And, And I think that it's important that whatever is done, uh, two things. One is that it's integrated with the existing healthcare system. And quite honestly, I think uh, it wouldn't be illogical for hospitals to actually bid to do this because they know how to run these facilities and they can ensure that patients who have complications of some of these procedures would have immediate access to an acute care hospital to deal with it. Oh, so they would bid as an outside thing, setting up an outside? I, you know, I don't have any inside information on this, but logically, I think that uh, it would be reasonable, at the very least, from what I saw in the legislation, uh, any bits have to talk about how they're going to integrate with the existing healthcare system. So having some of the big hospitals as partners would make a lot of sense. The other thing is a lot of private, sort of quasi-privatization has been tried in other countries. Some has been successful, some not. So it's very important that this initiative is monitored over time to make sure that it's actually achieving what the hope is that it will achieve, which is to reduce wait times. Dr. Razak? Yeah, I think I uh, agree with a lot of what you heard from Dr. Moore and Dr. Naiman. I think it is uh, clear to everyone that there is a problem here with wait times and access, and that is across the political spectrum. Everyone agrees to that. 
The question is, how do you approach that problem and what are the solutions? And I think the real disagreement here is around the potential for entities that have a profit motive entering this space. So if you look at, for example, hospitals um, providing or being able to bid and take over services, many will argue, and I think this makes sense, that the essential reason for hospitals being in place is not profit, but to provide care. And so if they were the groups that were providing oversight and management of these additional uh, clinics that are expanding capacity, and of course, again, capacity needs to be expanded, then you take away the profit margin. And I think the legitimate question here is when there is a profit margin, where does that profit come from in the delivery of care? Are you going to pay people less? That seems implausible because we already have problems staffing a lot of clinics and healthcare facilities. So you need to pay them at least going wages. And then the question is, where does the money come from? And I think that hasn't been clearly answered yet. And secondly, I'd like to see more description of what oversight looks like here. So what kind of data will be reported to the public and when? And I think that has to be very clear right from the onset. It shouldn't be a catch-up. And and I think we're going to talk about this later. Data transparency is really critical for many parts of the health system, and especially with this question of for-profit entities entering the system very clear oversight in a way that's publicly accessible and transparently reported. Well, uh, there's big issues with oversight uh, for this government, certainly in in the long-term care sector, and that they uh, seem to have a problem with with doing that. Um, so, uh, yeah, you so you want more oversight and and uh, watching where the profit comes from. I mean, w- one of the things. I have noticed there, are, you know, whether it's in the healthcare system or not, that there are a lot of places that are not, they're set up as not for profit and, uh, the salaries in them are eye popping. So the money goes somewhere one way or another, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think in this system, I mean, this is the biggest allocation of our taxes go to healthcare in this country. Um, I believe that this data is uh, publicly should be publicly owned and accessible. It, it it really should be transparent what where the money goes to, how much is being paid for each of these services, what salaries are like, and also who is taking advantage of these additional capacity expanders. Is it being equally rolled out to all groups? Is it only going to people who can pay for certain kinds of services? Ideally, you want a system where the expansion happens in a way that OHIP makes it equally accessible to all people. Well, the, yesterday, the, the health minister said uh, very unequivocally that nobody will be able to be bumped down a waiting list because they just want the OHIP services. That, I, that is the principle that I think all of us would agree with, but the data should be there to objectively evaluate whether that is true. That, that is what I think... Is, it has to be part of the package that rolls out. So the clinics, but also the data to demonstrate that no one is jumping the queue because of these new clinics. And, well, and go ahead. I was just going to say we've talked about data before, uh, in you know, in terms of the federal health uh, agreement. So uh, there, the more data, the more money it costs, and we seem to be quite behind on that, Doctor Moore. Or are we? Well. You know, it is there is a cost associated with collecting data, uh, but I think the value uh, proposition is very favorable in that we can use that data to inform uh, future decisions. And, and I think it's particularly critical 
in a new initiative that you almost prospectively define what are the key endpoints we're looking to affect here and then come back and look at those over time and see if you're achieving what you hoped you would achieve. Yeah, well, that would be clearing the wait list, wouldn't it be? Uh, yeah, I think in this case, it, it's... It, well, the other thing, though, you've got to be careful about, and this kind of follows on with what Dr. Razak said, is that if you've got a for-profit facility, there's certainly the experience that they can kind of manipulate, maybe that's not the right word, the system. So, for example, for hips and knees, there are complicated patients requiring hips and knees, uh-huh. and there are what I would say is more straightforward patients and if you have the private clinics only taking the uncomplicated cases and all of the complicated cases get uh, referred back to the hospital because those are more expensive, then you aren't really achieving as much as you'd hoped you were going to achieve. But wait a minute. Wasn't that part of uh, the idea of, of putting some things in private clinics, that they would do the simple stuff so the hospitals could deal with more complicated stuff? Yeah, but then you have to, you do have to then look at what the compensation model is because if the more complicated stuff is more expensive, then you just have to make sure that the hospitals who are still providing that are appropriately funded and not at whatever, you know, if there's just a single base rate for a hip replacement, you have to be able to adjust that based on patient complexity. Hmm. And that can be done. That can be done. Uh, so uh, we are getting ready to start uh, wrapping things up. Uh, so what are you looking at for the coming week, Dr. Naiman? Um, I guess further uh, information about how this is going to roll out within the province. Me in particular, I've been very interested in waiting to hear what will happen with the new funding and with primary care. I think that um, this is a big issue and needs to be addressed. And if we start from the bottom up, and primary care is always the strength of any healthcare system. And that the the government's going to have to have some innovative changes for how they're going to organize the delivery of primary care, because we can't keep going how it is. It's quite bad every day. I keep getting more and more requests for people that their doctor is retiring and they're looking for a new physician. Okay, well that that's definitely happening, Doctor Moore. Well, I mean it's it's getting close to budget. You know, the budget year I believe is April to March. Uh, so, I mean, I think the really key thing is, you know, what are the health budgets going to look like for the next few years? We've, we've run some fairly substantial deficits to get us through the COVID epidemic, and now things have to level off. So I, I think, you know, that really is going to tell us what the challenges and directions are going forward. Uh, before we uh, get to our last wrap-up thing, there is one thing that I forgot to mention. This is a CBC report about a clinic, a children's clinic, uh, charging extra to get access to a nurse practitioner, and that's being portrayed as some kind of loophole. Apparently, uh, nurse pa- practitioners are paid in in these in the group family practices, but not in for fee services. Uh, before we uh, st- finish wrapping things up, does anyone have anything to say about that? So, so that's completely true. So if you're part of a family health team, and this is some of the disparity that exists within primary care and the delivery already within the province, if you're in a family health team, then you get access to a nurse practitioner. Me, as part of just uh, working in the community and not a family health team, I can't have a, a nurse practitioner working in the office. I would actually have to pay the nurse practitioner to work because the nurse practitioner cannot bill OHIP. So because it's an, a non-insured service, they can now provide these subscriptions where people can access uh, 
primary care through a nurse practitioner. So the government, you know, it would help a lot of things if they allowed nurse practitioners to to be able to bill OHIP for primary care, and then they could move into the clinics. Uh, Dr. Razak, is this a loophole of some kind? Uh, it is, and I think Dr. Naiman described it really well, which is that you have these um, funding models. So a nurse practitioner as part of a primary care team funded by the government, a nurse practitioner outside of that team not funded and therefore has to be covered. That kind of inconsistency, I think, has to be resolved as we see this new iterative improvement, hopeful improvement in the system. So if we are going to extend access to primary care that includes nurse practitioner-led models, then that should be paid for from the common pool of medical funding, OHIP funding. It should come from the same pot of money. You don't want to see a system like what is being described. So what is being described is completely legal, but I would say it's against the principle that we're trying to achieve here, which is that broad universal access from a single payer. So this is the kind of thing that should be addressed. And would you say, is this an urgent thing to address or is it kind of down the list? It's not, I don't think it's of the same urgency as, for example, the emergency room closures we've seen over the last year or the people who are now waiting one or two years for essential surgeries. But it has to be addressed as part of this portfolio of solutions that's being put forward, which is we have these inconsistencies in what we consider to be delivery of care. This is private. This is public. We want to smooth out those differences so you have more of a uniform system. You shouldn't have to pay for a nurse practitioner in one model and not in another when they're on the same street. It just doesn't make sense. Hmm. On that note, we wrap things up. Thank you so much, Dr. Malcolm Moore, Dr. Elisa Naiman, and Dr. Fahad Razak. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Great to be with you. Okay. Thanks so much, Libby. Bye-bye. We are going to take a break. And when we return, uh, the controversy over the irregular crossing at Roxham Road in Quebec is heating up. The premier of Quebec wants to send migrants to other provinces and to close the crossing. We'll drill down into that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. This week, the controversy over the irregular migrant crossing at Roxham Road in Quebec exploded into a whole new level. Now, critics have been complaining about it for years, but now Quebec Premier François Legault has waded into the debate demanding that Ottawa send migrants to other provinces and that they ultimately close the crossing. And with about 39,000 people entering the country through irregular crossings, he claims that Quebec cannot handle the influx and social services are strained to the limit. Now, the crux of the issue is what many people see as a loophole in our safe third-party agreement with the United States, and it means that asylum seekers who come through regular border points with the United States can be turned away but those who cross at points like Roxham Road cannot. 
So let me give you the numbers. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I would like to welcome Dr. Danielle Bélan, the James McGill Professor and Director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada, and Dr. Jennifer Elric, Associate Professor of Sociology, who specializes in immigration policy at McGill. Hello, and welcome to you both. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for the invitation. Okay. Thank you very much. So, uh, Dr. Bélan, um, how has uh, François Legault's entry, public entry into this debate in English Canada, how has that changed things? Well, I think it's just a way for him, I think, not just to uh, make his point uh, outside of, of Quebec, but it's really, I think, the main target of uh, this uh, this letter that was published in the uh, Globe and Mail is, is Justin Trudeau, to increase pressure on Justin Trudeau. But there is also, I think, uh, he's writing this letter not just to increase pressure on Trudeau, but also to show to his base and people in Quebec who are concerned about this file that he's doing something about it. So there is also a kind of home audience for this. Um, but, you know, I, I think that uh, this is a very big topic in Quebec. If you look at the media coverage right now, um, and you have uh, op-eds written about this every day, and also opposition leaders, especially the leader of the Parti québécois, uh, Paul Saint-Pierre Plamondon, are making a big fuss over this. And so I think that François Legault feels under pressure to do something about this. And, of course, in our federal system, especially when we deal with immigration, uh, the obvious culprit or target is the federal government, especially in this case, Justin Trudeau. Well, not just the Parti Québécois, it's also uh, the Conservative Party of Canada. They are really jumping on this, uh, Dr. Elric. Um, yes, and uh, I think it's important to clarify that uh, you know the, the opening paragraph of that letter is uh, actually very inaccurate. Um, he starts out saying that uh, asylum seekers are entering Canada because uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau invited them. Um, I think it's it's necessary to state clearly that uh, this has nothing to do with the Prime Minister's messaging. Um, asylum seekers are entering Canada because our country is embedded in a geopolitical system that is marked by immense inequalities in income, uh, prevalence of violence and conflict, exposure to climate change. Um, and for a long time, Canada has just been in a very privileged position due to its geographic insulation from refugee-producing countries. We have the Arctic to the north, the oceans to the east and the west, and this long land border with the United States to the south. And the U.S. has helped us maintain that privilege with the Safe Third Country Agreement. And so we're used to being in a position of choosing immigrants and refugees and not being chosen. We're not used to seeing images of people crossing land borders that are much more uh, prevalent in the United States with the Mexican border. And I think with global inequalities growing, this change was inevitable. Um, and regardless of uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's messaging, um, I think we're entering a new era of migration management uh, that's going to put us in the position that other countries like the United States, the United Kingdom, European countries and Australia have been in for a while. Uh, to digress just a touch, I have to say that I was shocked a few weeks ago when I saw that New York City, the new mayor of New York City, was putting people on buses to send them here. I mean, that's something you'd expect out of Texas, maybe, but uh, uh, Dr. Bélan? Yes, I think this, again, it's people passing the buck, right? 
So, and, and I think Jennifer is right. This is a new reality. This is a global reality. This is not just about Quebec, Canada. And this is about the changing world. And we have to adapt to it. You're right about, you know, the buzzing situation in the U.S. where they will, you know, the governors in the South, like Florida, will send uh, people who cross the U.S.-Mexico border to the North, to other states, to increase pressure on Joe Biden, the federal government. And now you see that the mayor of New York is busting people further north <laughs> to uh, uh, the, the Canada-U.S. border. Uh, I think that this situation uh, is, again, people uh, trying to pass the buck, writing, uh, uh, instead of working together to address the issue. There's no silver bullet. There's no easy solution here. Uh, just, for example, closing the Roxham Road, like uh, the leader of the opposition, in, uh, one of the opposition leaders in Quebec, Pierre, Paul Saint-Pierre Flamandon, asked, is not a solution, because if you close that uh, border crossing, people will just use it, will cross elsewhere, and it will be harder to monitor. So that's this kind of, it's not a serious solution, right? So we have to work with our U.S. partners. Uh, I think maybe mayors. Uh, 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 I think we have to work with governors and, of course, with the White House to address this issue. And, of course, the federal government has uh, a central role to play here. But let's not try to simplify uh, the situation something that too many politicians do, uh, uh, instead of really ad addressing uh, this issue, which, as uh, my colleague uh, uh, Jennifer just said, this issue won't go away anytime soon. Well, is it certain that if uh, some of these, I would call them pain points for people, and certainly for the Quebec government are closed, that that uh, there would immediately be another place where it would be uh, that convenient to cross? I mean, the people crossing at Roxham Road are uh, well-received. Uh, uh, it doesn't appear that it's uh, that dangerous or anything like that. Um well, I think I think one thing that that uh, should be clear in this debate is that um, closing Roxham Road will not solve the issue. Um, as you've already suggested in your question, if one access point is closed, others will open up, and we know this um, from uh, you know um, years years long observations of the U.S. Mexico border. Um, it's not possible to achieve full border control along a land along a long land border. Even if we were willing to build walls and other fortifications, um, these measures only make journeys more inhumane and more deadly for the people who are crossing the road, um, who are crossing a border, um, because they think that is their next uh, best option um, moving forward. Um, if I may also say something about distribution, however, you know, I think uh, Premier Legault's uh, call for uh, a call to redistribute asylum seekers among uh, provinces is actually something that uh, that Canada um, might have to explore in the future. And there are uh, good precedents out there. Uh, for example, Germany, uh, which receives, you know, has multiple uh, land borders with uh, or you know, you know, is is an, you know, easily more easily accessible by land from uh, refugee producing countries, um, has uh, long had the quota system for distributing um, asylum seekers among its 16 federal states. Uh, and it has it's, it's, it's a key uh, quota system that is uh, calculated based on income tax revenue and population size of each of the federal states. 
Um, and uh, <clears throat> so, for example, one of the larger states, North Rhine-Westphalia, um, is uh, is meant to process 21% of all um, asylum applications received in any given year, and then the, the percentages uh, change accordingly. And so when someone arrives in Germany, um, in, in whatever federal state they arrive in, uh, the office that, uh, that processes them first checks the quota system, and that determines whether they will be processed in that federal state or uh, sent onwards um, for processing elsewhere. Um, so there are um, possibilities for managing this, um, and I actually don't think that's an unreasonable suggestion, primarily Legault's uh, part. Well, uh, a huge, huge numbers come here to Toronto, and it, it, it's uh, been a big irritant with the federal government because uh, 50% of our uh, shelter spaces and services for homeless people are going to refugees, and there's always money promised. And uh, the, the money uh, takes a very long time to arrive, if at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, as Premier Legault pointed out in in his letter, it's it's not just a matter of money. I mean, you need people, you need staff to to deliver these services, and they're not that plentiful on the ground. So the, it's it's an issue here as well. Yes, I just oh. want to say that there, there is already, you know, quite a, many of the refugees, the majority of them who actually are crossing the, the, the border at Roxham Road right now, they end up in another province than Quebec. They are sent away uh, by the federal government. So uh, they are the sent away. The, sorry? Sorry, yeah, you're saying the federal government already sends them away. Yes, exactly. Uh, they already do this, and it's, it's public knowledge, it's in the media. But um, uh, the, the important thing to understand, though, uh, is what my colleague said, Jennifer, about uh, Elric, about uh, Germany, is that we need to have a more systematic way to do this, right? Um, and so uh, if the federal government could come up with a plan and discuss with the provinces and say, you know, these will be your quotas and this is how much money you will get a year per, not per uh, a refugee claimant and so forth to, further, to clarify the system, to be better organized about it. But, you know, I think that Quebec should take a, a portion of these uh, asylum seekers, right? Uh, they should not all be diverted to other provinces, but at the same time, it should get its fair share, quote-unquote, uh, uh, in relationship to its just population, right? Uh, I think it's possible to, uh, to clarify the rules and the founding structure, but there is already some form of redistribution, quote-unquote, taking place. But it's because François Legault asked it, and the federal government started to do it, uh, I think, last year. And it's still an ongoing process, but then it's not that well organized. So then it's people in other parts of the country who have to deal with this. And, and, and so I think that we need to better structure the entire system. Uh, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, he was also had an issue that, that not all the migrants speak French. Yes, uh, that, that's, that's, that's an issue, of course, that there is a thing, too, that the migrants who don't speak French don't want to learn French. Uh, you know, later on, they, they, if they, they, they become uh, actual refugees, you know, they could still move elsewhere around the country, right? Um, but yes, language is always an issue when we talk about immigration in Quebec. And uh, that's true when we talk about economic immigrants, but also when we talk about uh, refugees and asylum, se- speak, uh, uh, asylum seekers. You can't just remove uh, language from uh, immigration debates in Quebec. Well, yeah, except it does seem a, a bit much 
to say that people who are desperate, they're coming because they're desperate, but if they don't speak French, forget it. I mean... Well, the, yes, that's, I think uh, is, that's a human rights issue, uh, but I will let my, my colleague uh, Jennifer uh, comment on this. Oh, no, you just, <laughs> thank you, Daniel. You just took the words out of my mouth. I mean, that's, that's just it. I mean, we have, uh, you know, as I said, we're used to being in this very privileged position um, in our geographic insulation, this privileged position of choosing immigrants and refugees. Uh, and I, I emphasize also choosing refugees, uh, you know, because... Um, Many of the people we resettle are chosen from uh, UNHCR camps, or they are chosen in the sense that they are privately sponsored. Um, and uh, as long as we are, you know, in a position or see ourselves as in a position of choosing immigrants and refugees, um, then you know we also see ourselves in a position to use this uh, towards nation-building efforts, right? Which include considerations about cultural, uh, linguistic uh, uh, compatibility, um, uh, economic interest, etc. But um, I think um, it is quite uh, um, concerning to frame, um, you know, the arrival of asylum seekers um, as, as something that, uh, that, that we should have the power to choose over, um, you know, the, the right to seek to claim asylum um, in another country is, is a very basic human right. Um, um, and in this case, if, 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 if we have to choose between um so, you know, supporting, recognizing um, human rights uh, on a global scale um, versus, um, you know, maintaining efforts at nation building uh, by choosing immigrants and refugees. I think we do have a, an obligation, given our humanitarian uh, commitments uh, worldwide, to privilege human rights. Okay, um, everybody, please hold on. We've got to take another break. We'll be back on more with more on the Roxham Road crossing and uh, whether it should be closed, whether more migrants should be diverted. Uh, let me give the numbers out again. I'm sure that people have opinions on this. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740, and we'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about the growing controversy over Roxham Road, where many, many immigrants, migrants, cross irregular way, which means that they cannot be turned away. The Premier of Quebec, François Legault, waded into the controversy. He published an editorial in the Globe and Mail, which said that many of those migrants should be diverted to other provinces, something one of our guests says is already happening. And he also says it should be closed. So what do you think? Will closing solve the problem or will it just cause uh, an opening somewhere else along our lengthy border with the United States? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And I'm talking to Dr. Jennifer Elric and Dr. Danielle Bailon, both from McGill University. And uh, the question is, uh, where are we at with this in terms of our American partners? Has this been discussed between Justin Trudeau and Joe Biden, Dr. Bailon? Yes, of course. But this is a this is a complex issue because the United States is uh, facing a lot of pressure on its southern border. 
And I don't think that dealing with the northern border is a big priority for them at this point, right? Joe Biden is facing a lot of criticisms and attacks from Republicans, and uh, not just in Congress, but also Republican governors uh, uh, in the south of the country over the, the Mexico-U.S. border. So um, I'm not sure that, you know, <laughs> what's happening at our border, Roxham Road, is something that's important to him. And, um, and so I, I think that there is ongoing discussion between Canada and the U.S. Um, over this situation. But again, I don't think that it's a major priority for Joe Biden. Don't forget, uh, the United States, uh, you know, in the United States, uh, most people don't care that much about what's happening in Canada. <laughs> and that's the case, too, in the White House. Unfortunately, I live in Washington. I interviewed politicians there or policymakers. And, you know, Canada is not, uh, unless you're a border state, you know, you like New York State, upstate New York and so forth, or you know, uh, uh, like uh, north of Minnesota or whatever, then they, they do care a bit about Canada because they have a border with us. But otherwise, the further you go south, the less they care about Canada on average. Or are even aware of Canada. Yes, that's right. <laughs> are, are even aware of Canada. Uh, what about... Excuse me. What about our own huge backlog? We keep hearing uh, promises from the immigration minister that we're clearing the backlog, but uh, I think it's at least two years long to process refugee claims, to process immigration claims, uh, Jennifer. Well, the backlog um, is uh, also nothing new, really. Uh, the backlogs um, that you mentioned, I think, are a, a permanent feature of our immigration system. Um, I do a lot of historical research um, and have spent a lot of time in the archives uh, looking at the periods in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and there's discussion of backlogs even then. Um, and uh, this is a, a feature of our immigration system, I, I think, um, well, mainly because the, the demand uh, for entry into Canada will always exceed our capacity uh, to process applications, be they immigration applications or asylum applications. Um, so I, I actually, I, I understand the promises. I'm sure the federal government is doing everything it can, um, but um, I'm not sure we, we will ever be able to overcome those issues. Right. But the, it's the federal government that sets tar- targets that they can't meet. I mean, that's immigration. That's not asylum seekers. But still, it seems like... I think it's a challenge in terms... When we talk about targets, you know, and we want to further increase it, uh, uh, you know, increase these targets in the future uh, in terms of economic immigrants and people we want to to bring to Canada every year. I think if you want to do that, you will need to take more immigrants, including refugees. You will need to invest more in housing and, and infrastructure. Uh, and that is a major challenge. You cannot just increase immigration levels without doing uh, uh, anything else to actually, you know, uh, create the, the the infrastructure that's necessary to, uh, uh, you know, uh, house these people and to to um, to help them, uh, uh, you know, settle into our country. Um, and so I think that this is a, a big, uh, big uh, challenge. You know, immigration brings a lot of economic and social rewards, but it's also challenging. Uh, in terms of social policy, in terms of public administration, and so forth. And, and I think that we have to understand that major investments are needed uh, if we want to uh, uh, just get more, uh, more immigrants in this country. So may I add to that? Sorry uh, to, to interrupt. Um, I, because you know, we're linking numbers now um, 
and also, you, know, you just mentioned again the healthcare system. I think so. So, if we have these these backlogs as a constant feature, while also having um, high immigration targets, I mean, we are bringing in um, you know hundreds of thousands of people a year um, in permanent and temporary positions. I think it's. One thing, I mean, it can be tempting to say in the face of these situations like housing and healthcare challenges or, or, or you know, inefficiencies to say, well, maybe we shouldn't be bringing in so many people. But, um, you know, we, are, we have an aging population and very low fertility. Um, and immigration currently accounts for 100 percent of our labor force growth. Um, which is, you know, and our labor force sustains our, our, um, you know, public assistance, uh, programs and, and healthcare systems. Um, and immigration also currently accounts for 75% of our population growth. And, and what people often overlook is that immigrants are also, um, an increasingly, um, important source of the healthcare workers, uh, providers that we so desperately need. Um, if you look at, um, number of immigrants who are in healthcare um, positions. I can tell you that 37% of our pharmacists currently working are immigrants. I think we know that here in Ontario, yeah. actually. Um, and uh, we, we do often uh, discuss that. So uh, the bottom line, getting back to Roxham Road, uh, is it your prediction, Dr. Bailon, that, uh, that uh, the government closes it to bow into pressure? Or what, what's going to happen with this? Well, if they close it, as we said, uh, both Jennifer, Elric, and I, and other people, many other people, we're not the only ones saying this, if you close it, you don't solve the problem at all, because people will enter elsewhere. So that's not a solution. That's a fake solution. Right, but you uh, think so, they will? So, I'm not asking. So if... even if they close it, it won't change anything in, 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 the, in, the, in the long run. Right, but you think in that's the what picture. they'll do? What do you think will, will happen here? What I think will happen. Right. Well, we'll see. We'll talk about this for weeks and weeks and months and months. And I think that there will be more discussion between the federal government and the provinces, especially Quebec, about this. They're already working behind the scenes uh, in terms of, you know, uh, helping Quebec uh, uh, address this challenge and, and, and moving people to other provinces. But they will need to be more systematic about this. And we'll need to continue to talk to our American partners. Uh, um, uh, or about this, but again, it will take time. Hmm. And no let up in sight. Um, uh, Dr. Elric, what about, uh, is there any cooperation between Ontario and Quebec on this? Oh, I'm afraid I, I can't answer that question directly. I'm not, um, I'm not, some, I, I, yeah, I, I don't have an accurate picture of what, uh, what kinds of discussions are going on between the two provinces on this particular issue. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering because, uh, there is the same problem here. So I'm wondering if they're kind of trying to get together on that. I know that, uh, uh, Premier Legault and Premier Ford have been, uh, I, I don't know if allied is the right word, but they've been on the same page for a number of things. Um, uh, Daniel Bélan, do you see any kind of uh, perhaps concerted action between the Ontario and Quebec governments? I think the provinces need to, of course, talk about this, but preferably at the same table with the federal government. Uh, but I think bilateral, uh, you know, bilateral relations uh, between provinces are very important. So, and we know that there is a special relationship between Ontario and Quebec. We are neighbors. We are the two biggest provinces uh, in the country. Uh, you know, so I don't know if it would be a bon cop, bad, bad cop episode or what. 
but I think that uh, certainly there is, I think, a good relationship between uh, Doug Ford and uh, and François Legault. Uh, but I think they could work together maybe to pressure the federal government to uh, sort things out and work with them on this file. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Jennifer Elric and Dr. Danielle Bailon. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. You're most welcome. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.